would, and we'll open them to Revelation chapter 16. For the past three weeks, we've been looking in chapter 15, and a message is called Preparing for Plagues. And those preparations in chapter 15 lead us directly into chapter 16 and the vision of the last plagues that God will bring upon the earth. Now, before I go any further, I often wonder sometimes what people think when they come on uh, Sunday night and, and um, they haven't heard the ministry balanced out a little bit with the other messages because if you come on Sunday night, it feels like we're just going to pour God's wrath down on your head. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, well, I won't say unfortunately, this is all part of the Word of God and we have to take it all exactly as it comes, so we have to teach it uh, whether it's pleasant sometimes or not. But we're talking about the plagues that will end the tribulation period. And when these are over, uh, Christ will have subdued the entire earth. And then he will begin his kingdom uh, reign upon the earth called the millennial kingdom. And it's characterized in the Bible with these words, ruling with a rod of iron. And it isn't as if God is not already in control. God is in control of everything right now. But what God has allowed Satan to do is to usurp that authority. And Satan pretty much has his way with the world right now. And so for thousands of years of human history, uh, Satan has been called the God of this world. And God has allowed him to have his run of the place. But that's going to end one of these days. And God's going to bring his own kingdom upon the earth. So rather than give you a lengthy introduction At this point, I think what we'll do is just read the text and then we'll continue with a little bit more preliminaries. And then I want to give you a description of the first three of the last seven plagues that come. So if you'd stand with me, please, let's look at Revelation 16. We'll read verses 1 down through verse number 7. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for those who have gathered tonight to hear your word. And we ask you, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts through the message. And even though we have some things to say that aren't pleasant, we just pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand that you are an all-wise, all-knowing God, and you are a just God. And, Lord, you've told us that you are also a holy God. And so we can expect that you would do such things in order to bring a righteous king, a kingdom upon this earth. So we pray, Lord, you'd bless in the message tonight, and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know how you might want to do this, but if you were looking for a a dividing place, a a place to put a bookmarker that would split God's work in the world between grace and no grace, this would be it. You would put a heavy mark between chapters 15 and 16 because this is a line of demarcation 
between God's long-suffering for sinners and to the point that God says, I am not going to tolerate sin in the world any longer. Now, up until this time, the exhortations that we have read in the Word of God has been for sinners. Uh, From the time that Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, God has been ready and willing to receive sinners back to himself, to bring them back into fellowship. And God provides everything that the sinner needs to come to him. Every incentive has been given by God. Our statement of faith for the church reads this way. It says, Nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own inherent depravity and voluntary rejection of the gospel. I know that we are often accused because of our doctrine in this church that we believe that God has created some men just in order to damn them. And there are some who say, well, what you believe is that God has predestined certain people to hell. Well, I've never believed that. I've never taught such a thing. And what I don't try to do, though, is try to reconcile things that can't be reconciled by fallible minds. I know without doubt that the Scripture teaches that God invites sinners to come to him. And I also know without doubt that God has chosen the ones who do come. That's too much for me to try to figure out. God knows how that's done. I don't try to delve into the mind of God. The Scripture tells us that it's impossible for us to instruct God... We're not his counselors. We can't see into all of his ways. And the word of God says that they're past finding out. So I don't try to figure it all out. I just preach the word of God as God has given it to us. And I don't try to make God anything less than what he is. I don't try to play down the judgments of God and and think that it's my job to try and make God palatable to those who want mercy without judgment. I can't redefine God's love and make it fit man's model for what he thinks that God should be. So I know that without doubt that the Bible speaks of judgment. It speaks of awful judgment, of swift judgment, of irreversible judgment. It speaks of a final judgment. There's one author who has written about this passage of Scripture, and he makes this statement. He says, The Bible really is full of great messages of comfort and great messages of joy and sweet words of refreshment, moments of peace, great sweeping statements about love. There is so much that is affirming in Scripture, but all of this is really its opposite, speaking of this chapter. And if we understand love, it's because we understand hate. If we understand truth, it's because we understand lies. If we understand goodness, it's because we understand wickedness. If we understand reward, it's because we understand punishment. And God cannot love righteousness and faith unless he hates sin and unbelief. He cannot love truth unless he hates lies. He cannot love goodness unless he hates wickedness. He cannot reward unless he also punishes And so if you want to know why there's judgment, that's the answer to it. Now, do we enjoy preaching about God's wrath? Well, it's not really a pleasant subject for us, and and we don't really enjoy talking about everlasting punishment. We don't derive any pleasure from it. And if we do, we'd be unlike God, because God has said himself that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and that he would live. The judgment of God, though... It's to satisfy God's holiness and his justice. And so in that sense, God is pleased when destruction will vindicate his holiness. Now, we ought not to think, I think I mentioned this some time ago, that God is not moved to tears over this and just wishes that things could turn out in a different way. But the act of condemning and doing it just for the sake of condemning, just so God can see man writhe and 
To think that God would be sadistic like a child enjoys burning ants on a sidewalk with a magnifying glass. Well, God takes no pleasure in in judging wickedness for those reasons. Judgment actually corresponds to God's holiness. And God can do no less because if he pardons sin without punishment, then he takes away the judgment or the justice of his law. And a law without any teeth is not a law that has to be obeyed. Some have said if God doesn't punish sin, then the Ten Commandments become ten suggestions. Not to enforce God's law would mean that holiness and righteousness is not important to God. And so we continue to preach God's judgment because without it, the saints of God could never be happy. The threat of sin would always be there. Uh, Where there's sin, there is death. And what Christ has come to do is to do away with death. And so if there is no judgment, then we needn't preach to anyone. We needn't warn anyone because there's nothing to warn people of. And then besides all of that, we do have to remember that God is the judge. And God is one who always judges rightly. Well, there's no mistaking that. He always does rightly. And whatever God decides to do with us, it's God's right to decide to do it. And so we need to remember what the Scripture says. Psalm 100, verse 3 says, Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Jeremiah wrote, Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot cannot I do with you as the potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel." Isaiah said, But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay, and thou art potter, and we are all the work of thy hand. Solomon said in the Proverbs, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. So here's where we are in the book of Revelation. The day of God's wrath has come. This is his judgment upon the earth in which he subjects all, regardless of who they are, under the reign of Christ. So here is a time when there are hundreds of millions of people that will be killed. The rest of them will go into the kingdom, but they don't go willingly. The end of chapter 15 is the end of pleadings for sinners to repent and to come to Christ. And so from this point on to the end of the book, we won't see any preachers. We won't hear the gospel preached. There won't be another 144,000 special witnesses that God will send with the gospel of Christ. There won't be another of those two witnesses that did all those miraculous things in order to convince men of their wickedness. We won't see, again, men preaching the gospel, and neither will we see angels as we did in chapter 14 who declare the gospel of Christ. So at the end of chapter 15, all of this is done. God's patience has been expended. The day of wrath has come. Now perhaps we might say, well, we've already seen God's wrath, haven't we? I mean, we've just been through 12 chapters where the tribulation began and that was filled up with God's wrath. Well, we're right. You're you're right. Those were days of wrath. But we also noticed during that entire time that God left space for men to repent. He hadn't said up until this time that you can't come. He hasn't said that you can't believe. And so the gospel is still being preached. But when we get to chapter 16, folks, we have reached that point. 
Now, I know that there are people who disagree with me about this, and they think that in the millennial kingdom that there will be literally millions of people that would be saved during that time. But I don't actually see that. I see a world that's being ruled with a tight fist and one that's just itching to break out with sin again, but God keeps it under control. And men's hearts have not been changed. They have wicked hearts and seething underneath them all of the time, even while Christ is ruling in a perfect righteous kingdom, still seething underneath all of that is still man's wickedness. And so we read about the millennial kingdom that when it comes down to close to the end of that kingdom upon the earth or before the earth is purged, uh, completely burned up, that Satan is loosed for a little while and then he goes out and he deceives the nations once again. And that proves to us that the wickedness is still there. And so what these men do is they revolt against the righteous king. And so I do believe that we've seen the last sinner saved before, before chapter 16, and, that, and then God's wrath will be poured out without being tempered with mercy. Now with that, then we come to verse number 1. All of the preparations are through. The smoke is in the sanctuary of heaven, and that comes from the presence of God's glory. And there is an angel that steps out, and we hear a great voice here, Verse number 1, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Now previously, in the judgments that we've looked at so far in the book of Revelation, uh, during the tribulation period, it seems like there is a pause between each one of those. Now we've seen several of those, but uh, there's kind of, it seems, a pause between them, and they stretch out over a period of time. And so the first three and a half years of the tribulation are filled up with plagues, but they're not in rapid succession one after another. The last three and a half years are the same. Uh, There's more plagues that come then. But now we're in a scene that's very close to the end of the tribulation. Uh, These judgments that happen, these seven angels with these vials of wrath come out in a very short period of time, probably at the most a few weeks, even maybe just a few days. And so the judgments come upon the earth in rapid-fire succession. So what we have here then is really a blitzkrieg of these plagues. No sooner than one is poured out, then another angel comes on its heels, and on that angel's heels, and then pours out another plague. And so there are seven angels that will attack the earth with these sweeping plagues that cover the entire earth, so there's not one corner of the entire earth that's unaffected by them. Even if Osama bin Laden is still hiding in that rancid cave wherever he is, he won't be unaffected by these judgments. Now you could imagine then that there are many writers who look at these plagues in Revelation and they try to figure out some kind of a natural explanation for how these things could happen. So some will try to figure out How does the sun become hotter? And we'll talk about that probably in the next lesson. How does the sun become hotter? And how is it that water is turned into blood? How is there darkness over the entire earth? And so they try to come up with a natural explanation for those. Uh, It's the same thing that Bible critics have done when they look in the book of Exodus and they see all those plagues that come on the nation of Israel. And they try to figure out how that could possibly happen in a natural way. And so what they really are trying to do is to rule God out and say, well, this is just a natural phenomenon. But we can't go with the natural explanations. This is God that's doing this. When we were in Israel a couple of years ago, I kind of got in trouble with our guide just a little bit. Gary might have been a little bit ashamed of me, and he wanted me to shut up over some things that I said. But I remember the day that we were in the Valley of Elah, And we were going over the story of David and Goliath. 
And it was really fascinating to stand in that valley and to look up into those hills and imagine the Israelites standing up there and watching Goliath down there, taunting them day after day. So we were discussing the story of David and Goliath. And the guide that we had, who was really, really quite good, it's very, very enjoyable, did a wonderful job. But he began to explain the story of David and Goliath, and he was trying to make a point about how that stone uh, could have hit Goliath in the forehead and then felled him. And he said that Goliath was probably suffering from terrible headaches because of gigantism, which is an excessive production of growth hormone. And so because of these headaches, it's most likely that Goliath had removed his helmet, and so David was able to hit him with the stone. Well, that was just a little bit too easy for me. uh, because, um, and, And so I asked him, I said, why are you looking for naturalistic explanations to try to figure out what happened? I believe that David slung the stone and he was so precise with it that he was just like those 700 men of Benjamin in the book of Judges where it says that they could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. And so I think that David looked at that giant and with the skill that he had, he took that slingshot, he slung it, and with precision, he hit Goliath right in the spot where the stone had to go and Goliath came crashing to the ground. Well, when I said that, when I said, why are you giving naturalistic explanations? Well, our guide was a little bit perturbed about that. And he said, I'm not trying to give natural explanations. And about that time, Gary ducked back into the bus, and that was the end of the conversation. But anyway, there really is no explanation for this, except that this is a supernatural God who is in control of all natural forces. And so if God needs to bend any of the natural laws, what we think natural laws are, God is able to do that, and it's no problem for him. So you don't have to have any kind of natural explanations about what might have happened. So we see here, then, that the first angel is ready to go, and his plague is in verse number 2. And I've called this vial number 1, the boils because of the beast. Now in verse number 2 it says, And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, And there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. So right out of the gate here, we see there's an angel that targets the followers of the Antichrist. Now, I don't think that he's going to have any trouble figuring out who these people are. And if he does, they have a mark, don't they? Remember the mark that they received? There was something that told everyone whether they were actually followers of the beast. And so they had received his mark, which is 666. They're easily identifiable. They willingly took that mark. That was the mark that gave them their privileges. That's what gave them the ability to buy and sell in the kingdom of the Antichrist. It's what gave them their favor. But like all sins, the pleasures of sins are fleeting. There's never a good outcome to sin. And though it may seem convenient at the time, and it may be enticing, it might feel like sin can't be resisted, you can mark this down to be as certain as it can be. Sin always has its consequences. Sin's consequences aren't good. And it doesn't matter what kind of sin that you're talking about. I know in the past few years that this has been hugely downplayed, but you remember... Oh, I guess I I would think it's probably, I I don't know exactly, probably late 70s, 80s, somewhere along in there, when um, the homosexual crowd and all of that started coming out of the closet. And there was this huge panic about AIDS. Now, rightly so, no one could claim that homosexuality causes AIDS, but we certainly do know what spreads it. And we also know that that made 
the front page stories of the newspapers for, for quite a, a period of time what to do about the issue of AIDS. And we've always known this, that illicit sex of any kind brings with its, its own plague. It always has. And what do we call that? STD, sexually transmitted diseases. And there's nothing more that you can call this but God's judgment upon sin. And the very same thing is true about any vice that you'd want to mention. You can talk about illegal drugs or you can speak of legal alcohol. And none of it has any redeeming qualities. Drugs, of course, burn out brains. It ruins lives and causes uh, all kinds of different crimes. Alcohol enslaves people. It kills thousands of people on our, on our highways every year. I can't understand how a, a Christian would ever want to be involved with what the Bible calls a mocker. The Bible says that wine mocks and deceives people. Alcohol has that control over people. So I don't understand why God's people would ever want to have anything to do with it. And the tribulation time is characterized by pervasive drugs and alcohol, illegal Uh, I should say, illicit sexual activity is so common that we noticed before that God's people were especially denoted as those who have not defiled themselves with women. And I think the indication there is it's so widespread, there is so much of it that goes on, that in order uh, to identify his people, or or I should say it was just naturally assumed that, that everybody did it, and so God identified his people by calling them those who had not defiled themselves with women. They weren't involved with fornication. And I'm amazed as we look at the scene in America today how that we're really getting to an easy setup of what we see here in the book of Revelation. Today in our high schools, the number of teenagers who graduate from high school without having lost their virginity is almost nil. I was reading in the paper just a few uh, days ago that high school students use their cell phones to send nude photos of one another back and forth. And the practice is so common that people hardly even think anything about it anymore. You take a drive around town uh, about time that the high school's letting out over here and you have to cover your eyes up or you'll see a peep show without paying the admission. The other day I was watching our neighbor's kids come out of the house and they were coming out with their parents, no less. And you would think that they were headed to San Francisco to the red light district by the way that they were dressed. Now here we see that the mark of the beast is a guarantee that those who take his number and his name have been involved in some of the worst sins that you can possibly imagine. Nearly the whole world is in that category. And so those are the ones that this angel goes after immediately. And when he does, the scripture says here that the whole kingdom of the beast is affected with boils. Now the original word that we have here is a word that means ulcers. It's like a running sore. It's one that oozes out in a raw spot that causes severe pain. I don't know if you've ever had anything like that before. But I remember a few years ago that uh, my dad, when he had his last bypass surgery, that they took veins from his legs in order to use for the bypasses. And the circulation in his legs was so bad that it took months and months and months for his legs to heal. And so finally, after months, the the size of the the wound that he had on his legs finally got down to about, oh, the size of a golf ball or so. And the pain of that one sore was so excruciating that he could hardly even stand, he could hardly even bear it. And this is what we see with the kingdom of the beast. The followers of the beast receive these awful sores. They've been warned that judgment is coming. And the first thing that happens to them is this plague of sores that 
really, I think, causes them to think about all that sensual pleasure that they were involved in. And they have to be thinking, was it worth it? Was it worth it to go into that? And these aren't sores that can be healed. There's no pain pills that they can take for this. There's no ointment to put on it. There is no cure for it. And so they suffer terribly because of this. But we notice one thing about this, that it does not make them repent. They don't change their minds. And the reason that they don't is that God won't allow it. It's too late at this point. And we'll see towards the end of this that it actually drives them to their final rebellion. So they don't repent, they keep on rebelling. Well, as soon as that plague hits, there's another angel that steps up. And in verse number 3, it says, And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. Vial number 2 is the souls of the sea. Here's a judgment that's similar to the one that's in the book of Exodus. You may remember that when uh, Pharaoh would not let the children of Israel go, that one of the things that God did was to turn the, the water in the Nile River to blood. And then this is also similar to another plague that we've already seen. Uh, when the second trumpet sounded, there it says that the sea became blood. Now let me read it to you from Revelation 8. And the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. Now, the difference between this last plague that comes and the one that we see in Revelation 8 is that there is no living thing in the sea that survives this. Now, before, only one-third of all the sea life died. But here we see there's not one fish, there's not a whale, there's not a shrimp, there's not a crab. There is no sea life that survives. The water, it says, is turned into blood like that of a dead man. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but I can imagine that what it's speaking of, when you think about the blood of a dead man, then you would think of thick coagulating blood. It gets sticky and it starts to lose its fluidity. And you can imagine how that would begin to gum up the, the gills of the fish so that they can't breathe in the water. And, and it gets ingested inside of them. It coats the inside. And so you have all these fish that are dying. And... Fish smell bad when they're in the market. You know, I'm not a fish eater. I, I don't like the smell of fish. But you go down to San Francisco and you go to the fish markets and so forth there, that smells bad. But think what it's going to be like with all of the fish in the sea that are dead and they're rotting and washing up on the seashores. I, you can't imagine what the smell is going to be like. Now, I've already told you, I don't like natural, uh, naturalistic explanations of how this happens. But John Phillips has a very interesting comment about this in his uh, commentary. And, and, and at least I found this to be interesting. He says, From time to time, off the coast of California and elsewhere, a phenomenon known as the red tide occurs. These red tides kill millions of fish and poison those who eat contaminated shellfish. In 1949, one of these red tides hit the coast of Florida. First, the water turned yellow, but by midsummer it was thick and viscous with countless billions of dinoflagellites, tiny one-celled organisms. Sixty-mile winds arose, and stinking fish fouled the beaches. Much marine life was wiped out. Even bait used by fishermen died upon the hooks. Eventually, the red tide subsided, only to appear again the following year. Eating fish contaminated by the tide produce severe symptoms caused by a potent nerve poison, a few grams of which distributed aright could easily kill everyone in the world. 
Now, what Phillips went on to say is that nobody knows exactly what causes that, but it's been suggested that the pollution of chemicals that have been poured into the oceans over many, many years has been the cause of that. There's been so much dumping that it causes this explosion of these organisms that kill all sea life. I was thinking about that this week. And we're all aware of this oil spill that's going on in, in the Gulf of Mexico right now. And, and uh, they say that has the potential to be one of the worst e- uh, uh, ecological disasters that the world has ever seen. Now, can you imagine when God is in control of all this in, in, the, in the time of tribulation, that not just one of those oil rigs breaks down and begins to spew oil, but all over the world that happens? And can you imagine what that would do to sea life and potentially that could be something that brings um, about all of this kind of thing. Now, whether you believe in the natural explanations or not, uh, that might be something that we could think about. Well, that's bad. And, And people are probably thinking, well, you know, it's bad that the sea turns this way, but at least we have the fresh water. Well, that's what they think. Verse number four, And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of waters, and they became blood. So vial number three is that all water is waste water. And so immediately upon the heels of the oceans being turned into blood, God strikes the fresh water supply and he turns it into blood. And now all the streams and the rivers of the world have turned into blood. So you drive down, uh, down through the Central Valley and you'd go by the California aqueduct and you'd find it full of blood. All the way from the mountains and the Sierras down to the L.A. Basin filled with blood drive down I-5 and you know you come to the grapevine and you see those huge pumps there and the huge pipes that pipe the water up over the mountains, crack one of those open and here you would find it filled with viscous blood, uh, pumping, the pump straining trying to get that up over the mountains. Go over to Calistoga where they fill up what's Calistoga water and it comes out of the ground looking like rosy red Hawaiian punch. And you start to drink a Red Bull and you open that up and you look inside and you think, man, they really did stuff a Red Bull down in there. So all of this water, seawater, fresh water, all of this is turned into blood. And we know that it only takes a few days without water. You know, the human body requires water and only a few days without that and people begin to go crazy. I mean, people can see hallucinations and all kinds of things. People go out of their minds. And so it could be this is the very thing that drives people to... um, that gathering in, at Armageddon, at Megiddo, the plains of Megiddo, and, and there they are crazy enough to think that they could do battle against God who controls all of these natural forces. Well, we go on reading in verse number 5, and it says, And I heard the angel of the water say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged us, or judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy." And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Now let me make just a few comments here and then we'll be through. But we notice here that verse number 5 says, The angels of the waters. Now I find that to be somewhat of an interesting phrase. You may remember that we talked about some time ago that it could be that there are angels that that are in charge of certain uh, countries on the earth. For instance, in the book of Daniel, we read there that there was an angel over Greece and there was an angel over Persia. And it very well could be that we're not actually talking about peoples here, the peoples of nations, but we're actually talking about geographical locations. 
So it's, it seems like, uh, according to this scripture, that God has angels that are assigned to look over the hydrological cycles of the earth. In chapter 7, uh, there was an angel that held back the four winds of the earth all from all different directions. And we know that when the wind stops, then the hydrological system stops as well because then you don't have the wind to drive the clouds and you don't have the storms and so forth and you don't have rain. So angels might, in fact, work in tandem across the whole earth, keeping all of these things in working order. Now, we do know that God uses angels as instruments to carry out certain things on the earth, like he's doing here. God also uses men for certain purposes. So instead of God just speaking the word, which he could do, he could just say, turn, uh, you know, waters turn to blood, and he could do that and all the other things. But instead of doing that, he uses these angels to carry out his work. And so I think that's what we see here. These angels take these plagues and they spread them from one side of the earth to the other. So they're the ones that are in charge of this. I think it's going to be interesting when we get to heaven uh, to ask those kinds of questions. There's so many things that we wonder about and we don't have the answers to. It's nice to be able to ask somebody and see how it all works. And you never know. When we get to heaven, you may find out that everything that you learned in the Sunday morning form class was wrong and uh, gets all straightened out there. But we have one final note for this evening, and that is God's vindication, which is blood for blood. No doubt there are liberal theologians and there are sappy preachers, as I would call them, that really know nothing about the real God of the Bible. And so they're going to complain about God's judgments. And people wonder, how could God actually do this? Peter will say, well, how would God dare kill all the fish that are in the sea? And the Sierra Club is going to say, what kind of a God is going to destroy the fresh water and gum up the oceans? But the angel of God comes forward here and he says, hold on just a minute. God is righteous. God is just. God has judged rightly. Now, God knows Latin and legalities. And the term for this is quid pro quo. Blood for blood. God is actually the only one who has the individual right to enforce eye for eye justice. And so, God says they took blood... They killed the blood of the, they killed the martyrs and they took their blood. They thirsted for blood. And now God says, you can have all the blood that you want. And so he turns all this water to blood. He says, you get blood for blood. And what we see there is God's vengeance. They took blood, so God gives them blood. Tit for tat, quid pro quo, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's what we call justice. It's what we call also God's vengeance. And so there we have it. We have Three plagues that come in rapid succession. Bam, 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 one right after the other. There's no relief. There's no rest. One right after the other. No, even time, no time to even breathe. No pauses in this. And God will keep hitting the earth time after time after time in this short period of time until all is completely pulverized. Now, I started out the way that I did this evening because I thought it was necessary for you to understand why it is right for God to finally shut up the day of grace. There is not one of us that if we were God, would be as long-suffering as God is. If we were God and we had been treated the way that God has been treated by people consistently all throughout the history of man, turning their backs on God, blaspheming God, we would never have lasted this long. But God is long-suffering, and what God has done, he's given people time to repent. But we have to warn you, you don't want to hang around outside too long because if you get past chapter 14 and you haven't repented, then there is no way 
when you get to chapter 15 and 16. This is a dividing line. It's the difference between grace and no grace. And you want to make sure that you don't cross that line. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time we've had to spend together tonight. As I've stated, we don't particularly like to talk about wrath and judgments and think about people having to suffer all of these things. But we know, God, that you are the just God. We know that you know exactly what to do. You are a holy God, and we have to pay attention to that. We have to regard it. So you've given people time to repent, and everyone sitting under the sound of my voice tonight has that opportunity. They may repent. But there's coming a day when the day of repentance will be over, grace will be over, and then you'll be ready to set up that righteous kingdom upon the earth. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to warn people, to give the message, and we pray that you would turn hearts to you in repentance and faith, trusting Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls. So bless us as we sing. We thank you so much for those who have come again tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.